Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you that your kingdom has come in Christ and that your kingdom is present, it's near, it's among us. And we look forward to the day when your kingdom is here in completion and fullness, fully realized. Would you help us to be about your business until that time comes? Would you help us to to make this the, the prayer of our lives and to embody this petition with the way that we live our lives? Lord, we know that our only hope is your kingdom coming. Our only hope is your salvation. Our only hope is you enforcing your kingly rule. And so uh, would you help us to submit to you and to align ourselves with your will for our lives? And may it come on earth as it is in heaven, even now as we open your word. Lord, would you be present among us to heal, to save, to sanctify? Would you be at work among us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. All right, so this last Sunday, we saw Donald, or not Sunday, this last Friday, we saw Donald Trump's inauguration as the President of the United States of America. And it's a rather curious event. I don't know if you caught it. Uh, These inaugurations are are curious events. And it makes sense, of course, to have a a ceremony wherein we, uh, there's the oath of office taken, and there's there's prayers and and invocations and all these sorts of things from, from clergy who have connections with the politicians involved. Uh, But it's also a rather curious event because leading up to it, there's all this entertainment from pop stars and rock stars, like three doors down, they're so awful. Uh, And, 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 uh, you know, Broadway entertainers and all this other stuff. Uh, One of the more interesting things I think that you see often with these types of events is the type of language uh, used uh, when talking about the nation in which we live. Often the language used to describe the United States and the role our nation plays and and the issues facing uh, our globe, you see this underlying belief that that the U.S. is this kind of redeemer nation, this kind of redeemer nation. It's been placed here by God in order to set the world straight. That the the agenda of the U.S. will bring about a kind of worldwide renewal and, and we're the answer to all the world's problems. And of course, we believe that the U.S. has been established by God himself, just like every nation has been, and, and we're very thankful to live here. It's a, it's a wonderful country to live in. We're very thankful for that. Uh, I, I'm so glad to, to be living in uh, the United States of America. But the, the under, the, what I'm talking about here is, is the underlying, the pervasive belief uh, in the underlying language that you see in events like these, that the U.S. Is, as a nation is, is this nation that God has chosen to save the world through. Here's an example. President Reagan was well known to to refer to the United States as, I quote, a city set on a hill. Uh, He made reference to this in the eve before uh, the election in which he became president and also in his farewell address to the American people and elsewhere. But this, of course, is what Jesus says about the the kingdom of God, the people of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5.14. He he says that Jesus says that the people of God, you are a city set on a hill. We, we are the, the light in the midst of a world of darkness. We are a righteous people in the midst of a world of sin and depravity. But he's describing God's people, God's kingdom, not the U.S. A few years later, President George Bush described the United States of America as, as the light of the world. 
the light of the world, which is, of of course, another reference to Matthew 5.14 here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells the people of God that we are the light of the world. Likewise, President Barack Obama at his inauguration is quoted as saying that the U.S. is, I, I, I quote, the last best hope for the world, the last best hope for the world. This just this last Friday, President Trump quoted Psalm 133.1, how good it is for brothers, uh, the people of God, to dwell in unity, and then encourage the, the people of the nation of America to dwell in unity, drawing a, di- a direct line from the people of God and the American people. Now, of course, again, we're very, very thankful to live in the nation in which we live, and we want to work and pray for its flourishing, the flourishing of our city and state and nation in which we live. I believe that's our call as Christians. We are called to that. We should hope the best and pray for the best and pursue the best for for this place in which we live. But listen, the U.S. is not the light of the world. the, The U.S. is not a city set upon a hill. It's not the last best hope for the world, and it's not the people of God. That can only truly be said about the kingdom of God and God's kingdom citizens. Amen? Man, and while we work hard to serve our neighbors and fellow American citizens, the primary desire and pursuit and prayer of our lives is, is not that Uncle Sam's will would be done in every other nation as it is in America, but that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. That's the pursuit of our lives. That's why we pray your kingdom come with urgency and fervor, realizing that the future belongs to God and his kingdom and his people. And that's what we want to unpack this morning. This this big point summed up in one sentence that we'll see together is that our call as kingdom citizens is to pray to our king that his kingdom come. That that, that our call as kingdom citizens is to pray to our king that his kingdom come. So we'll walk through that big point in three stages. Look with me at our call, our king, and our petition. Firstly, our call. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this identity that we received from from Christ of being children of God and how now uh, we can come to God as our Father. And in Christ, we we are known, we know God, and we're known by God as His children. We can draw near to Him and get intimate with God in prayer with the confidence that He hears us and loves us because of what Christ has done. But this week, we want to see a little bit of a different aspect of our identity that we've received in Christ. The gospel, in the gospel, we not only have been restored to God relationally, but we've also been restored to God vocationally. We've been restored to right relationship with God as our Father and, and also as our King now. So not only have we been made right in terms of, uh, with God in terms of our relationship, but also in terms of our vocation as citizens, as subjects, as witnesses of the kingdom of heaven. And that's a big focus of the Sermon on the Mount, wherein we find Jesus teaching on prayer here. Jesus is, is, is preaching the sermon and showing us what the character and practices of his kingdom citizens that he is creating looks like. It's a people who are poor in spirit and meek and merciful and joyful in the face of persecution. It's a people who not only refrain from murder, but repent of and flee from hatred in their hearts for others. It's not only a people who are chaste sexually, but people who, who take lustful thoughts captive and, and who don't retaliate against the violent to get vengeance. They, they, they love not only their friends and family, but even their enemies, those who hate them. Not, and, and it's a people who, who give to the needy and to fast, not to be seen by others, but because they want to know God and they want others to share in the joy of knowing God as well. 
And so it's, it's a people who, in the words of Jesus, as he summarizes what the call in the Sermon on the Mount is, it's a people who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then not only does Jesus teach us what this new humanity looks like and, and about what the character and practices of this new humanity looks like, but in his life and death and resurrection, the initial inbreaking of the kingdom of God is realized. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he saves us to include us in his kingdom. He saves us to include us. He sends his spirit to include us in his kingdom. And this is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 3.20, where he says that we, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our primary citizenship. And now as God's new humanity, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he calls us and commissions us to be a people of holy and Christ-like character, to, to contribute to his kingdom. Uh, John Frame has said that we ought to make it our highest goal, our highest priority to contribute to the historical program of the kingdom of God. That's our call. Jesus calls us to declare and to demonstrate the gospel to those who don't know God and his kingly rule. He, he calls us to engage in the life of a kingdom people, to devote ourselves together to his word and to the fellowship of our church and to the sacraments. And he calls us to devote ourselves to prayer, to prayer. Prayer is, along with these other things that we've mentioned, the call of God's kingdom citizens. God's kingdom citizens. We're, we're called to be heaven and earth people, a, a people among, uh, who, who among them, heaven and earth mingle together. We're called to be heaven and earth people. We're called to be a visible representation of the, the still somewhat invisible kingdom of God on the earth. And it's often said that the church is the model home in the neighborhood that God is, is making in this new creation. We're a sign, a foretaste, a, a, a picture of what is to come. And one, one of the ways that we embody this new identity is in prayer. And at the beginning of the series, we looked at how, how prayer is the privilege of the children of God. It's our privilege to be able to go to God our Father in prayer and enjoy communion with Him. But we also see in this prayer that it's not only our privilege, but, but our call, our obligation, our, our holy responsibility as citizens of God's kingdom. Look at Matthew 6, verse 5, where Jesus begins this section on his sermon uh, on prayer with saying, when you pray, when you pray, meaning it's expected, it's anticipated that, that the people of God are a people of prayer. Church, listen to me, it's, it's our holy responsibility, it's our obligation to be people who approach our king, the king of the cosmos, and ask for his kingdom to come and in his will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's our holy obligation. You know, citizenship from, from many and all nations and, and kingdoms comes with all sorts of certain responsibilities. It comes with responsibilities of abiding by certain laws, by paying certain taxes, engaging in certain traditions and practices. For example, close to a decade ago, I went to Brazil, uh, and I was there for about three months. I was in um, Maranga, Piranha, which is, the, Piranha is the providence, Maranga is the city, and it's like on the western side of Brazil, close to Paraguay and Argentina. And I was there for about three months, and, and when I was there, I learned that Brazilian citizens, they have the obligation of serving uh, in, in military service for 12, 12 months, a, a full year of military service, every single citizen uh, uh, given that they don't suffer from any sort of illness, they're, they're obligated, they're, they're called on by their nation to serve in the military. This, this is an obligation laid upon them. This is, this is a, a call laid upon them simply by nature of their being citizens of the nation of Brazil. 
And likewise, one of the obligations, one of the calls of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven is to pray in this way for the advancement of God's kingdom. And not just to pray in general, but to pray for for specific things. Notice the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. The first three petitions. Father, hallow your name. Father, bring your kingdom. Father, your will be done. And then after God's agenda is prayed for, then we pray for our daily bread and our sins to be forgiven and our deliverance from evil. His agenda is the first priority, the the first order of business when we come to him and ask things of him. So I'd ask you, friends, is is your prayer life marked by a holy concern for God's agenda? Is is your prayer life marked by, by, does his agenda take second place to your own? Does his agenda take second place to your own practical needs and, and your desires? And of course, we're called to bring our practical needs and desires to him. That's, that's uh, seen in the Lord's Prayer too. We're called to ask him for our daily bread. We're called to ask him for these things. But as citizens of heaven, our call is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And of course, all those other things will be added to us. And this, this holy call, this obligation, this shapes and forms our prayers. We're to ask God, to do his agenda first before our own. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done before we get into our practical needs. We're to pray for the church's obedience and the advancement of the Great Commission. We're we're to pray for faithfulness in in declaring and demonstrating the gospel. We're We're to pray for lives to be transformed by the power of the gospel. We're to pray for God to be glorified and enjoyed everywhere and by all. We're to pray for these things. We're to pray for his kingdom to come. That's our chief desire, our pursuit, our, our prayer, our call as God's kingdom people, as God's kingdom citizens, is to pray your kingdom come. And now that we've seen our, that it's our call to pray in this way, let's look a little closer at this petition. Just three simple words, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And over the next two points, we're just going to look at, at our king and our petition. We'll look at the very first word of this petition, your. The first word of the petition is your what does that tell us? That's, that's revealing to us that, that not only is God our father, as we saw a few weeks ago, but God is our king. He's, he's the king of the universe. And of course, this, this wouldn't be anything new to the original hearers of this sermon. It would have all been very familiar with the concept, the idea of God as king, the reality that God is king, that he rules and reigns, because this is a major theme in, in scripture. Uh, Psalm 10, 16 resounds because, uh, with, with this declaration that, that the Lord, Yahweh, is king. He is king. In Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, Moses paints a picture for us of a God who creates and rules over all things by the power of his word. He speaks and things obey him. His rule and his reign is established through his word. Israel's encounter, their, their, their encounter with God in the Exodus stories, God squaring off with the king of Egypt and, and showing his supremacy and his power and his authority over the king of Egypt. He's showing that he is the king above all. And over and over again, all throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God has revealed himself as king above, above all other kings and Lord above all other lords. He's the matchless king. Now, what do we mean, though, when we say that God is king? When we say that God is king, we're we could be referring to any number of things, but I want to point out three things specifically uh, that we often see in Scripture being referred to when we talk about God as king. First, when we say that God is king, we're talking about his power. We're talking about his power. He is the God who possesses all 
power. The, the theological term for this is the word omnipotence. Say omnipotence. Omnipotence. Good job. Omni, all potent power. He's all powerful. He's omnipotent. It's a word that theologians use to say that God is all powerful. And God reveals this to us in the way that he creates the cosmos in Genesis 1. He simply says a word and boom, planets fling into existence. He simply says a word. He speaks a word and the sun blazes. He says a word and mountains rise and valleys sink into the earth. He speaks a word and things happen. He speaks to nothing and nothing becomes something. He's a God who rules over all things by the power of his word. And then he continues to sustain his creation this way. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 tells us that Jesus holds all things together. Every speck of dust, every hair of your head is under the sovereign power and watchful eye of our God. He is powerful. He's all-powerful. And this extends to the destinies of of nations and kingdoms. Daniel 2.21 tells us that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's all-powerful. All things lie under the power of his sovereign control. There's nothing, there's no one who is outside of the power and control of the king of heaven. He has all power, and by his power, he controls all things. Another thing that we're saying when we call God king is that he has all authority. He has all authority. I know that that might sound similar to his power, but it is different. When we talk about God's power, we're talking about his might. When we talk about his authority, we're talking about his, his divine right. So it's the difference between his might and his, his right. His, his might to govern all things and his right to govern all things. The two are connected, but they shouldn't be confused. And God has all authority over us and over creation, simply by nature of the fact that he is our eternal creator. He's our eternal creator. Imagine God having to go to anyone to ask permission or or applying to a higher power to ask permission for something. He can't can't appeal to someone higher to himself because there's no one higher than the highest. He has all authority. There's no one with with more authority than the all-powerful and eternal God. There's no throne that he would kneel at, no ring that he would kiss. There's no one greater than him. Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 23 say, do you not know Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens of the the curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And Revelation 1-7 tells us that, that Jesus Christ is the prince of the kings of the rulers of the earth. He's above all politicians and kings and rulers and every authority that is named. He is above all. There's no one above God. He has all authority. And then another thing quickly that we're referring to when we say that God is king is his presence. His presence. Not like a physical presence because God is spirit, but God is is spiritually and invisibly present to be at work in and on in all of his creation. One pastor once said, God is over all things. He's under all things. He's outside all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above presiding, holy beneath sustaining, holy within filling. When we say that God is king, you know, we want to ask, where is God king? 
We say everywhere that God is, which is everywhere, all at once. He's exercising his authority and power everywhere that he is, and he's everywhere all at once. He's king above all. And so when we talk about God and his kingship, we talk about his power, his authority, his presence. And what I want to kind of tease out here when we come uh, is here that when we come to God in prayer, we're to come to him reverently, with reverence. You know, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at God as Father. He's our, he's our Father. We can get intimate with God, and He desires that. He's our affectionate Father. He calls us His children and cherishes us as His own. He calls us to that. This is true. But church, we must never confuse intimacy with irreverence or flippancy. We are not to confuse those two things. We don't come to the King of the universe flippantly. We don't come to Him casually. He is a consuming fire. He, he, he dwells in unapproachable light. His, he is holy. He's other. He is supreme in being and power and glory and wisdom. We don't waltz into the king's presence haphazardly in prayer or in worship on Sunday morning. We're called to prepare our hearts for such because he's a mighty king with all authority. We're to show him proper reverence and honor when in his presence because he is a glorious and supreme king who has power and authority over all things. The Christian faith and, and relationship with God is not some sappy, like I want to crawl into God's lap and stroke his beard and Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing. That's not how this works. He is our father, yes. Jesus is our savior, our precious savior, yes. But hear me, he's not weak or inconsequential. He, he, he is our father, yes, but, but we don't come to him casually. He is our, our father, yes, but his glory and his supremacy demands our reverence and fear. He is the almighty king who has all authority and demands that we revere him. That's what we see in the first word of this petition here. God is king. But then that can be confusing too as we move into our petition. Because another interesting thing about this petition is that we're asking for God's kingdom to come. If he's, if he's already king, why would we ask for his kingdom to come? If he's already king, why would, we, why would we want his kingdom to come? Wouldn't it be here already? Why would we ask God for this if he's already king? What are we asking for here exactly? And it's, it's important that we ask these questions because we want to pray this petition with knowledge of what it is we're asking. It's not just some mindless thing that we engage in. We want to pray for God's kingdom to come and we want to know what it is we're asking, who we're asking, those sorts of things. And now there are two things that we need to understand as we pray for God's kingdom to come. And that's first, there's a difference between God's kingship and his kingdom. There's a difference between God's kingship and his kingdom. And second, which we'll cover in a moment, that we live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom. So God, there's a difference between God's kingship and his kingdom, and we live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom. First, God's kingship and his kingdom, they're not the same thing. God is king. He always has been. He always will be. And so we're not asking him to become king what we're asking for when we ask for his kingdom to come is for him to, to, to if I had to put it very simply, for his kingship to be made visible. Now, similar to last week, when we looked at the petition for God to hallow his name, make your name holy, God. His name is already holy. It's already holy. But what we're asking for there is, is for God to cause his name, his reputation to be set apart in the hearts and lives of his image bearers. 
So here it is with this petition. God is king at all times, but we're asking, uh, what we're asking for when we ask that his kingdom to come is for his, him to cause his kingship to be recognized by all and to align things with the reality that he is king. Now, Gerhardus Boss, uh, you've probably read him in your devotional times. He's, uh, he's, he put it this way. To him, speaking of Jesus, the kingdom exists there where not merely God is supreme, for that's true at all times and under all circumstances but where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings men to the willing recognition of the same. In other words, what we're asking is for God to exercise his power and authority and to be present as king to judge evil and to save his people. That he would make his kingship visible in his creation by removing wickedness and giving grace. We're asking for God to remove opposition to his kingship and to graciously rescue to live under his kingship. He's he's already king. He always has been and will be. But we want his kingship to be visible and submitted to. And that's what we see in the Exodus story, isn't it? It's a a beautiful illustration of this reality. Uh, In the book of Exodus, we see that God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They're under this harsh and severe oppression of this wicked king and his government. And God remembers his covenant that he made with the people of Israel. And he hears their prayers and he's moved to compassion at their suffering. And so he comes down to judge the nation of Egypt and to save his people. And he sends plagues of bugs and blood and boils and eventually the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt. And in doing so, he rescues the nation of Israel from their oppressors. Now, God was king before the Exodus happened, but his kingdom came in the Exodus story. His kingdom came in the Exodus story as he was present to judge and to save. And now, my friends, we live in a time that the kingdom has come and been manifested in an even greater magnificence and power. God is, all, is king at all times and in all circumstances, but in Christ, the kingdom comes down from heaven to us on earth as the king of heaven comes down to us and dwells among us on earth. He is causing his kingship to be made visible and to be recognized by his image bearers in Christ. When Christ comes, the kingdom is coming in God's power. He's asserting his authority over all things and he is coming to be present as king. The kingdom comes with Christ, God's kingship is being recognized, being enforced, and being experienced in greater power than ever before in the person and work of Jesus. He comes to destroy all opposing powers and to save his people. That's what the kingdom coming means. But this also creates a problem for us, doesn't it? God coming down to judge. Because we are the opposition we, we, we are the usurpers to God's throne. We've, we've tried to put ourselves above and, and against God. And so initially, the news of God's kingdom coming is not good news. Initially, it doesn't sound like good news because it also means judgment. The, the coming of the kingdom means judgment for all who stand in opposition, who are usurpers to his throne. When, when King Richard returns in Robin Hood, is it good news for King John and his cohorts? Absolutely not. It's not good news. It's bad news when King Richard returns for them because it means the banishing, the punishment, the the removal of all usurpers. It means judgment. But part of the good news of this kingdom is that it comes in two stages. And theologians have often made the distinction that, that the kingdom comes in two stages by saying that the first coming is when the kingdom comes in grace. 
And the second coming is when the kingdom comes in glory. And this is where we need to understand the already and the not yet of the kingdom when we pray this petition. The first time he comes, he comes in humility. He comes to graciously rescue us and get us in on the plan of his kingdom coming. The first time he comes, he comes to live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died and raises again victoriously over sin and Satan and death. And in doing so, he secures our redemption. At the center of the news about this kingdom is the king who conquers sin and defeated death and triumphs over Satan through his life and death and resurrection. He comes with the good news that this kingdom comes first to grant amnesty to all who repent and align themselves with this kingdom. This is a king who reigns in grace and mercy, not cruelty. But then there's also the second stage of his coming. He will come again to wipe away every tear, to remove from the earth all those who refuse to bow the knee to his kingship. When he comes again, all the governments of the world will become the government of our God and Christ, and he will reign as king forever. And at that time, all oppression, all evil, all suffering, all destruction and wars and pollution and death will end forever. And the nations who raged will be judged. And scripture often refers to this thing as the restoration of all things or the renewal of all things. He will come to restore the abundance of life and and blessing and peace and prosperity that God meant for us to have all along. And that also means judgment. That means the removal of all who get in the way of that. That means the removal of all who refuse to bow the knee and they will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That's what we're asking for, for God's kingdom to come. And at the time we live in now is the time between those two comings in which the kingdom has already been established but not yet fully realized yet. We're living in this tension, this in-between time. Christ has all authority, but there are still those who contest his authority. There are still those who are opposed to it. Christ has won the victory, but there's still a mess to be cleaned up. And the reason that there's this kind of lull between the first and the, and the second coming is he's giving his usurpers, he's giving those who are opposed time to repent and submit to his kingly rule because he's patient and gracious. He's patient and gracious with us like that. And here's where we get to get in on, on some of the fun. God has called us in this in-between time here to make the kingdom visible. As the church, we are called to make the the kingdom visible. We are an embassy of the age to come. We are an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. And he calls us to submit to his rule by repenting and trusting in him. And when we do, he reigns in us and rules in us by the power of his word and spirit. And for those who, who are repentant and trusting Christ, we are a representation of his rule and reign on the earth. We're to be a sign, a foretaste, an instrument even of the kingdom of God. That means us. That means veritas. We are a sign, a foretaste, and an an instrument of God's kingdom here in the city of Dayton. God rules and reigns in his church, and he rules and reigns through us as we preach the gospel, as we're obedient to the great commission of making disciples and baptizing them and administering the Lord's Supper and teaching them to obey and by caring for the least of these. He rules in us as we work in culture and our places of employment from a distinctly Christian point of view. He rules through us as we live according to the ethics of this kingdom and care for orphans and widows and the poor and the oppressed. And we make it our highest goal in life to contribute to God's kingdom, to his program, to his agenda. And it's as we do this that God is slowly but surely 
advancing his kingdom. Day to day, year to year, decade to decade. At times it looks as if not much is changing, but God is working the leaven through the lump. The mustard seed is growing into a mustard tree that will take over the garden. And so it is with God's kingdom. He's at work in the world and he's at work through us as we respond to the good news of his kingdom and live in the joy of Jesus. And so in closing, what does it mean for how we pray? Well, how should we pray in light of this petition? How do we pray for God's kingdom to come? And there are many ways that we must do this and that we can do this, but here are four specific ways that I'd like to encourage you in as you get in your groups this week and and pray on your own throughout the week. Firstly, pray for God's kingdom to come in yourself. Pray for our, as you pray for yourself, as we pray for ourselves, we can pray for God's kingdom to come in our hearts in order for us to grow in repentance of sin and trust in him. We can ask him to help us kill sin in our lives and to submit more and more to his kingly rule by loving him and trusting him and obeying what he commands. His kingdom comes not merely to transform the looks of things, but he transforms even the the innermost depths of our hearts. And so we ask him to rule in our hearts by the power of his word and spirit. Pray for his kingdom to come in yourself. Secondly, we pray for God's kingdom to come in our church. As you pray for our church, you can pray for the kingdom to come by asking God to help us be a church that faithfully and humbly preaches the gospel of Christ. Ask him to help us baptize and administer the Lord's Supper faithfully and with care. Ask him to raise up elders and deacons uh, to, to, uh, for our church to be led by, uh, faithfully led and cared for by qualified leadership. Ask him that we would be faithful to serve those in need and to be a family to those who have no one. And not just for our church only, but for other churches as well in our city, other gospel churches that we share a Savior with. Pray for Refuge City Church. Pray for New Hope Community Church across the street. Pray for Arbor Baptist Church. Pray for Marketplace Movement. Pray for other gospel churches in our area that we share a Savior with and pray for them in that same way. And then we also pray uh, for the Great Commission. Another way you can pray for God's kingdom to come is is by praying for the advancement of the Great Commission. Pray for the gospel to be preached in all nations and for churches to be planted and people baptized and disciples made in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you can even pick particular people groups and nations to pray for. If you go to joshuaproject.net, joshuaproject.net, you can learn about how to specifically pray for people groups and nations that have not yet heard or known about the coming of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. So pray for the advancement of the Great Commission. And lastly, you can pray for Christ's return. The very last prayer we see in the Bible is in Revelation 22.20. And it's this, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. That's a wonderful prayer. That's a wonderful prayer. Because it's in his second coming and in his second coming alone that the kingdom will come in fullness and in completion. At that time, all opposition to God's kingship will be removed finally and completely from God's creation. At that time, the complete salvation of God's people will be fully realized. God's will will be done purely on earth as it is in heaven, as heaven and earth will become one again like it was in Genesis 1. And we will reign with our God forever and ever in perfection and joy. The prayers come, Lord Jesus. Our call as kingdom citizens is to pray to our king that his kingdom come. 
And we have the assurance that it has come in the first coming of Christ and that it will come again in the second coming of Christ. And we're called to be about this agenda until that time comes. Let's pray together.